Matthew chapter 15, let's begin in verse 1. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When he had called the multitudes to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a little, a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent them away, or, and he sent away the multitude got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the privilege of being able to study your word and to have you build our lives upon it, Lord. And we yield our hearts to you. We thank you that your word is powerful. Lord, we don't want to waste any time asking for it to be powerful. We already know it is. And we ask that our hearts would be receptive, though, to your word, and that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning and apply these things to our hearts as only he can. 
We pray, Lord, that he would show us where we need to make changes individually, where we need to repent, where we can be encouraged, where there's hope. Thank you, Lord, that you fashion us and make us more like Jesus and further conform us in the image of him as we study your word. We thank you that you said if we continue in your word, we're your disciples indeed. May we be found as those disciples. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We've entered a time which is called the year of opposition. Jesus has been opposed by some religious leaders up to this point, but now it's really ramping up. He's in the last year of his ministry. It's called the year of opposition, where really we see organized opposition occur. And we see it in verse 1 when it says, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So these, notice it says in the middle of verse 1, were from Jerusalem. That's very important to understand. These were the big boys, the head honchos. These are the, the, the religious elite. Remember, there's a distinction between those in Jerusalem, at least in the eyes of the people that lived in Jerusalem, between those in Jerusalem and those in the Galilee region up in the north where the Lord Jesus has been all this time. They look down upon that area. Even Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It had a famous reputation for not having value in terms of the people that were there. There was great prejudice. And I've always kind of said it's kind of like how some people, and I emphasize the word some, in you know the Bay Area or San Francisco may look down on people in the valley. You know, they're a bunch of Okies and you know all that. And 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 fine, whatever they want to say to us, they're they're a bunch of people that are city folk, and you know, we can say our things about them, but you know, we we don't want to have a war between them and us. We're good, we're good with them, those that are in the Bay Area, right? Maybe you're here today, you're from there. Um, better be careful. So, but there was this prejudice. So they, no doubt, these religious leaders, these Pharisees, these scribes and Pharisees were told in the beginning of verse 1, they were from Jerusalem. They had heard of the, what was going on, uh, and they come to try to oppose him. And I say try because they, they didn't really oppose him. It didn't really work. It never worked. You can't attack God and have it be successful. He knows our thoughts from afar, we're told. A little bit of advantage. Uh, and so here they are, they're, they're coming up here to, up there to, to come against him. And we notice that they're not true seekers. They're not really coming to learn more about him. Uh, they come and say, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders, but they do not wash their hands when they eat bread? So this was this tradition of the elders. This was the oral traditions that had been passed down from rabbi to rabbi, eventually would be codified or, or kind of officially organized in written format called the Mishnah. And, and you can look up the Mishnah, you can read the Mishnah yourself today. And it was just a bunch of added things to God's law. If you boil it down to its essence, it's adding to what God said as if he had trouble communicating what he fully wanted to communicate. You know, sometimes... And youth, I'm glad you're here this morning. You got your attention. You're awake. Uh, they will sometimes youth, but we, we can all do it. We can add to what someone has said. We can say, you said this, and yes, I'm aware of that, but I want to add all these other things to what you said and then make it binding on other people. <laughs> you know, And that's kind of what they did. They, that's what legalism is. Legalism is adding to God's word. And so here they were saying, you, your disciples are going against the Mishnah. They're going against the tradition of the elders. And so it's, it's interesting how legalism or adding to God's word works because it, it never, it always puts the attention on ourselves and it always makes, does something to where we feel better about ourselves or, or it emphasizes us and it has to uh, add to God's word most of the time contradicts God's word in order to do that. And, and so it did contradict God's word. There was laws about washings, 
but it was related to the priests and, and it was specialized. It was related to how they prepared themselves to minister in the tabernacle and the temple. But nothing in the law ever said that we have to wash our hands before eating bread or whatever. Yeah, that before when they eat bread, like they had put uh, on everybody else. Say so they made these traditions that made it binding on everybody else. You know, there's things that are biblical, which are in the Bible that we're commanded to do. There's things that are unbiblical that are in the Bible that we're commanded not to do. Then there are things that are non-biblical, which the Bible is silent on. And we get into trouble when we start taking things that are non-biblical or the Bible is silent about, and we put, try to put those on other people and try to make them biblical things or make them things that the Bible tells us to do. And we have to know how to judge whether or not those things are biblical or non-biblical or unbiblical and, and so forth. But notice what Jesus says to them in verse 3. He says, uh, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Verse 4, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. So Jesus quotes the fifth commandment there, Honor your father and mother, out of Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. And then he quotes, He who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. So maybe it is good that the youth are here. <laughs> uh, I mean, God, you know, I mean, it was in the law. You curse your mother or your father, it was a capital crime back then. There wasn't a lot of that going on. That was right out of Exodus 21, verse 17. So why does Jesus bring this up? What is he saying? And what is he getting at? And what he's getting at is this little thing that they did. And let's continue reading. He kind of expounds on it. Verse 5, But you say, not the Word of God, but you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift of God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. So Mark calls this Corban, which is an Aramaic word which means a gift to God. So basically they were supposed to take care of their parents with these finances that they have, but to get out of doing that and thus honor their father and mother by taking care of them financially, they would say, oh no, no, that, that money is a gift to God. So it's reserved for God. And so I can't use that to help take care of you. That's exactly what they were doing. It was like this little loophole. And, and so instead of providing for their parents, they, they keep it for themselves, but do it in the name of doing it for God or acting spiritual. Isn't that how legalism works? Looks real spiritual, doesn't it, on the outside? Looks like we're doing great things for God. All these man-made rules that God doesn't say looks great. Always a man, it has a, always an inward focus, a man-centered focus. It makes me feel better about myself. Makes me feel like I'm doing something to earn some kind of standing with, with God. And that's what, that's how false doctrine works. It's added to scripture. It puts the emphasis on me. It disobeys the scriptures, contradicts it. And, and again, it puts me as the beneficiary instead of God and others. And notice Jesus says in verse 6, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. So we, we quote this, and this isn't the, other, the only time he says this. We quote this a lot in, in church and so forth, and, and, it's, and it's quoted a lot, but sometimes the context isn't in, included. And so when Jesus says your tradition can make the commandment of God of no effect. He's not saying that our traditions, our man-made traditions that are unbiblical can actually make God's word less powerful. He's not saying that because nothing can make God's word less powerful. We can't make God's word any less, or any less powerful or more powerful. It is what it is. It's powerful. But what he is saying is when, when we obey man's traditions which contradict God's commandments, especially when they involve blessing others, like this example of taking care of your parents, then when we do that, we, people do not receive the effect of our obedience. They don't. They cease to be on the receiving end, and thus they, re, they cease to receive the blessing that God intended for them. And the example, like I said, is in this passage where parents are not receiving the blessing of their children taking care of them like they're supposed to. And, and so it makes the word of God of no effect in the parents' lives in this example. But it could be many different examples. We, as fathers, are told to not provoke our children to wrath. So if I disobey that and I have a tradition, well, you know, I'm Irish. You know, so I have a bad temper. 
And, you know, and all my family, all growing up throughout my generations, the, the dads have been harsh with kids. And that's just how we are. That's how we, whatever your last name is, are. That's, that's what we do. And that's your tradition. But you're disobeying God's word. It says, don't provoke your children to wrath. Well, when we do that, we make the word of God of no effect in their lives. They don't receive the effect of our obedience and thus they are, don't receive that benefit and they're provoked to wrath. And that's, that's kind of, you could, you could, uh, any kind of a commandment that God lays out, we could have a tradition that contradicts it. And when it involves others, they're robbed of the effect of us obeying the commandment. And that's how it's made of no effect. But more importantly than all of that is that God doesn't receive the effect or blessing of our obedience. And that's supremely who our obedience is for, even when it involves other people, because he loves those people more than we could ever love them. So all of our traditions, we need to look at traditions. Nothing wrong with having traditions. They just can't contradict God's word. And they can't work against how the Holy Spirit is leading us from one moment to the next. One of the, one of the symptoms of a dying church is this is how we've always done it and we're never going to change. And I'm not talking about things that are clearly biblical. I'm talking about things that the Bible is silent on. Well, we've never done it any different than, you know, and we're we're just stuck in our ways and we're inward and we're not outward and we're we're focused on just our tradition and we're not open to the spirit switching things up and changing things up. You know, Jesus approached and spoke to the angel that was overseeing. And I believe that was the elder of of the church of Sardis and said, you know, that you from the outside, everybody thinks that that you're alive, but you're not at all. There's a totally different assessment that I have of the church than you have of yourselves. And so we can be involved with all this spiritual activity, but yet be completely poor spiritually and naked and blind and all these things that that he says, because we're not open to the Lord changing things up and having us be flexible to how he wants to do things a little bit differently, because people don't change, their problems don't change, but the culture changes, the timing of of when people need their needs met changes. All these things change, different methods of reaching people. We need to be flexible and pliable uh, for God to to, um, use us in different ways. Now, Jesus gets to how it affects God related to worship in verses 7 through 9. Look with me there. He says, hypocrites. And a hypocrite means actor. Hypocrites or actors. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying now before we get to what he says just think about the pharisees these big dogs these head honchos from jerusalem hearing that isaiah the prophet prophesied concerning them and not just prophesied about them but did a great job at it did a really good job at it just think how that would smite their pride they thought they were so spiritual they thought they were so superior to everybody else And he says, a prophet prophesied about you. And this is what he said. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. First of all, look at how God notices how genuine our worship is. He knows if we're just going through the motions. He knows if our heart's engaged or not. And we see here that his priority is that we would have a heart engaging him and we can sing songs. And a lot of times we only talk about worship in the sense of worship in song, but it's really our whole lives. We can go through the motions, spiritual motions of our lives and have our hearts totally detached from the from the spirit in the sense of not that he doesn't live inside of us. But I'm saying that that his, you know, active work in our lives and we're shutting out his voice or trying to put his voice out of our mind and our thoughts and we can just go through the motions. But with a singing too, and we can just sing and be thinking about lunch or thinking about what all these other things. And we're not completely focused on him and he notices it and it matters to him. And so we need to have our hearts open. But when he says the doctrine, the te- they're teaching as doctrines of commandments of men, it means that worship requires that we have our Bibles open, that we test what, what we're saying is worship. What anybody is saying is worship. What anyone's saying is biblical teaching or, or worship. We need to test those things. We're supposed to worship in spirit and in truth. And so these people were teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
And he said, they worship me in vain. It's noteworthy that teaching God's word is an expression of worship. So he's saying that they're thinking that they're, they're worshiping me by teaching these things, but they're doing it in vain because it's not, these things aren't scriptural. They're just their traditions. So when, when we can do that related to teaching or living our lives a certain way, we can, we're basically saying that we are elevating our own ideas and our own thoughts over the word of God, that we know better than God. We know better than, than God's word when we add things. And a tradition can make it, can manifest itself in many different ways, things that contradict the word of God. A lot of times in, on our, in our circles, we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church and their traditions, and they hold tradition equal to the word of God and so forth. But there's plenty of traditions that Protestants have and people in various churches have, and some of those things contradict the word of God. So we have to test any what anyone says is binding upon us. This is something that we're going to do. We need to test and make sure that it's biblical. And that's why it's so important for us to know the word of God is, is, and to obey God's word because then we'll be protected from these teachings that rob other people of receiving the benefit of them like these parents were being robbed. Verse 10, when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? The disciples were concerned about this. Remember, these are the head honchos. These are the big dogs from Jerusalem. And they're, they're concerned about this. They weren't possibly as concerned of the Pharisees that were local, but these ones that came from Jerusalem, they have a lot more power probably. They're concerned about what they thought, and it says that they were offended. And that's our word scandal on. We just saw it a week or two ago. It's the word, another, we saw it in the form of the word stumble. But it's it's offended, stumble, and so forth. And so, yes, they were offended or they did stumble when they heard it. He's telling them that Isaiah prophesied about them. So that's okay. They need to hear the, the truth about themselves. Verse 13. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Remember, we looked over the parable of the, of the tares where Jesus talked about the enemy comes and sows a weeds basically or darnell grass this this fake uh crop that looks like wheat and so forth and at the end god's gonna reap all those things and cast the tares aside and throw them into the fire and so forth so he's he's kind of backing that up and he says let them alone he's telling the disciples don't get involved in them leave you leave them alone there's there's danger and he says they are blind leaders of the blind and if the blind leads the blind both will fall into a ditch. He's talking about the disciples will fall into a ditch. Don't be worried about them being offended at the truth of the word of God. If you overly concern yourself with these people, you're going to be affected by them and you're going to be deceived and you're going to fall uh, into the same deception potentially as, as they are. Then Peter answered and said, explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemy. So Peter's confused about this. He explained this to us. And, 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 and he should have understood more than he did. I mean, Jesus is, is surprised. It's not just that, it's not Jesus is just frustrated. He's, he knows that Peter should understand this. And he's, he's, he's saying, are you still without understanding? It wasn't being mean. But he's, he's holding them accountable to what he's already heard. And then he talks about what goes into a ma- the mouth is, is, what, is not what defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth from the heart. And he lists all these things here. And what's interesting is that the world believes, even right now, the world believes that our outward actions are the source of our problems and those outward actions eventually can af- influence our heart, which is true in a sense because it, doing bad things does affect our hearts. But Jesus is saying the opposite here. He's saying that the origin of these things is the heart. 
not the actions. The actions are outward manifestation of what's already going on in the heart. And Jesus talked about this. We looked at this when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Pharisees were so just so impressed with their outward uh, actions and so forth. And, and again, Jesus was st- teaching his disciples that you've heard it said that this is true, but I tell you, and he's focusing in on a higher accountability that we have. The standard is higher because it's not just outward things. It's not whether or not I merely murder someone. It's whether or not I hate in my heart. It's not a matter of physically committing adultery. That's bad. But I'm not innocent if I'm having lust in my heart. I'm already committing adultery in my heart. So he's raising the bar there. By the, It's so funny when people say, oh, you know, the person around the mount, we're supposed to live by it. <laughs> it's like, that's true. God wants us to live by that as disciples. But he's showing us that the standard is so much higher than what we originally thought. And it takes a supernatural power and grace from God to be able to do it. It's interesting that Disney, almost every Disney movie today and in recent history are telling children to follow their heart. And when Jesus is talking about all the things that come out of the heart and God's assessment of our hearts is slightly different than Hollywood. Jeremiah the prophet said in, in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We don't even know our own hearts sometimes. We need God to expose things in our hearts. And you can ask him, God, am I... My heart being deceptive to me right now? Am I being deceived by my own heart? And he can reveal those things. But he says, out of that mouth, that's what reveals who we are and what we're about and what our struggles are. And then he says in verse 20, these are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Again, he's going back to their original charge. He's saying that, because again, Jesus violated the, their traditions all the time. It's like he went out of his way to do that. He didn't disobey the word of God, though. He didn't disobey or break the law of Moses. He fulfilled the law. So really, when he's saying it's not what goes into a mouth, a Jew, you remember, Jesus is a, Jesus was a Jew, is a Jew in that sense. That, and he, Matthew's writing to Jews about this Jew, the Messiah. It's very Jewish. So when he's saying what doesn't what goes into a mouth, he's that doesn't defile a man. He's talking about the foods, the kosher laws, the clean and unclean foods. And, and, and he's saying that God is revealing to you now his priorities. He's focusing on the heart, not just food or what goes into a, a person. And we can think that God emphasizing the heart is only the New Testament, but it's not just there. It's all, the way, it's all through the Old Testament too. Samuel was there to pick out the next king. And he was convinced that it was of these six sons that were there. It had to be one of them. They looked great. Everything on the outside. And God said, do not look at the outward appearance. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's right. Even when David had sinned and he's confessing his sin to God, and he said in Psalm 51, to create in me a clean heart. God has always been concerned about the heart. And so... Um, Peter would struggle with this for years, actually. He'd struggle with the fact that God, two things, that, that God's desire is for the heart supremely and God's desire is for every heart, not just the Jewish heart, the Gentile heart. And all these things are related. And what Jesus is going to do the rest of this chapter is we're going to see in a moment. He's going to be focusing on Gentiles. He's going to be focusing on other hearts other than Jewish hearts. That's going to be a stumbling block for them because he's he's it's going to be different than what he's already been doing up to that point and so peter would struggle and he'd struggle for years i'd like you to hold your place here turn to acts chapter 10 and i want to see i want you to see and me to see where he continues to struggle and then god cures it for him he 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 helps him with this struggle related to accepting gentiles and focusing on the heart they're related In this passage that we're going to look at in Acts chapter 10, some people call it the Gentile Pentecost. And it's when God revealed to the church that he wanted to save Gentiles. Now, the the, the deception was, this is what happened. This is why the disciples didn't get this. Because Jesus, and he's going to tell us in these verses, "I I haven't come except to come to the lost tribes of Israel, lost sheep of Israel, whatever. So he focused on the Jews. So they misunderstood 
And they thought that God didn't care about the Gentiles because Jesus didn't primarily focus on the Gentiles, but that was wrong. He just had in mind for the church to reach the Gentiles, not, not him, because we're supposed to go to the Jew first and then the gospel goes to Gentiles. But all through the Old Testament, God talks about he wants the, the Jews to be a light to the Gentiles. He says it over and over again. And, and so Peter's just getting this. And so God uh, speaks to Cornelius, this God-fearer, this Roman centurion in his house in Caesarea and tells him to go and send people to go get Peter, who's in Joppa, which is about two and a half days or three days of a journey south along the Mediterranean. And Peter's there in the house of a tanner, which was against tradition, and he was already being uh, reformed in that way. He would never be in a house of a tanner with the dead skins and all the blood and all that before. But he's there, and he's on the roof, and God gives him a vision, and he has this blanket and clean, both unclean and clean animals, and lowers it down, tells him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, not so, Lord, a contradictory in terms. Not so, Lord. You can't, that's like saying efficient government or honest politician. You know, they don't go together. You know, not so, Lord. And does it three times for him to see. And he says, what God has cleansed, you shouldn't call unclean. And he's trying to get him, get across this idea that what God has cleansed is okay. He's not saying that unclean things by themselves. He's saying, I've cleansed, if I've cleansed them, they're okay. And he would cleanse the Gentiles. And then they'd be okay. They'd be acceptable to God because God had cleansed them. And at that moment, those messengers came from, from Caesarea. And they knocked and he came and went with them. He knew by the Spirit he was supposed to go with them. And he went. And I want to pick it up in verse 34 where Peter preached his little sermon that was a little sermonette. God interrupted and saved people in the middle of which I love. Verse 34 of chapter 10. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Well, yeah, you do now. Uh, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. The word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to the witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water? that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the, in the name of the Lord. Then he asked him to stay a few days. So here we have this lesson that Peter learned. He had to learn that these foods are not the most important thing. God's focused on the heart and he wants to save every heart, including the heart of the Gentiles. Now turn back to Matthew chapter 15. And what we're going to see is Jesus ministers to some Gentiles here through the rest of the chapter, really. Verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this is the only time recorded in the Gospels that Jesus left Israel proper. They actually went out of the country. It's the only time in the New Testament. It's the area of Phoenicia uh, along the coast of the Mediterranean, way up north. So, Tyre is about 20 to 25 miles north of Israel on the coast of the Mediterranean. And uh, Sidon is about another 20 or 30 miles up the coast. So we went total of 50 or 60 miles north of Israel there. Remember, the opposition is happening. These leaders came from Jerusalem to oppose him. He's getting away from opposition for a purpose uh, there. And so he goes up north and 
Tyre and Sidon is mentioned in the Old Testament. It's, it's not fam- they're not famous. They're really infamous for sin and disobedience and so forth. And so uh, Jesus is, is leaving Israel, going up on foreign soil. And Mark tells us that he went into a house and wanted to remain hidden. But someone, and not that he's afraid, don't, don't misunderstand. There's just a timing to everything. So he's not going to unnecessarily uh, allow himself to come under too much opposition and he's still ministering to people and so forth. But, but someone found out about that he was there. And we see it in verse 22. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon possessed. Now, Canaan, Canaan, the, the, the nation of Canaan didn't exist at that time. There were descendants, but that's the people that the Lord expelled from Israel when he gave that land to Israel. So this is a Gentile. It's a woman. And so you have a Gentile woman, a Canaanite. There was a lot of strikes against her trying to talk to a Jewish rabbi. Rabbis usually didn't speak to women. And she, but she calls him something that's significant. She says, Oh Lord, son of David. That's a messianic term. She recognized that he was uh, the Messiah. But notice in verse 23, it didn't matter. He, 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 it says, but he answered her not a word. Again, he, Mark tells us he wanted to remain hidden. And, and, but there's other reasons and he gets into it. But his disciples are getting impatient and his disciples came and urged him saying, send her away for she cries out after us. It was annoying to them. She would not stop. And there's always this, seems like this pattern of Jesus wanting to meet needs and the disciples wanting to send people away. I want to send them away. You want to have compassion on them and help them. And it just goes back to how we are. We don't want to be bothered. We want to do the things that we want to do. We're, and Jesus is always focusing on the needy and the hurting. Again, he is, you know, he is allowing her to continue and to petition to draw out of her this faith here. And he says, send her, um, or he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Again, he's not in Israel. He's in Phoenicia right now. And he was called as the Messiah to minister to the Jew first. He still ministered to Gentiles. He's already ministered to a centurion and done a healing and marveled at his faith. So he's already, it's just like he will not minister to Gentiles, but that's not his main purpose there. And so she came and worshiped him. That's significant. So she identifies him as the Messiah and worships him, saying, Lord, help me. She's just desperate. Forget the titles. Forget anything. Just, I'm desperate. Lord, help me. You need to help me. I mean, the thought and the picture of her demon-possessed daughter is crowding in her consciousness above anything else, and she's desperate, and she knows this man can, can heal her daughter. And he answered and said, and this can appear insensitive, but let me explain it. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. So that, wow, that's, I mean, that's harsh, right? But see, this is, it's appropriate in the sense that he came to certain people, the the children, so to speak, in this little um, thing that he says here. The children are Israel. He came to, to, to Israel. It wasn't proper for him to focus on Gentiles right now. It wasn't. And these dogs are not the kind of dogs that you that were ravid ravage you or, or, you know, wander around in the streets. It's a completely different Greek word. That's why it says little dogs. And it's talking about the children. This is those type of dogs that were hated. They weren't. And Gentiles were referred to as dogs and they had it. They had it coming. <laughs> they live like animals. So that wouldn't be inappropriate. But this is talking about the little pets because they never if they were those kind of dogs, they wouldn't have been in the home to begin with. They wouldn't have been that intimate with the family that they're able to get crumbs down below. And so she is, has the posture here in verse 27. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs, you know, the pets, eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And what she's saying is, I don't want what's only appropriate for the children. I don't want the children's food, something that's supposed to go to the children, supposed to go to the Israelite, the Jews. I don't want to, to take from them. I don't want to rob from them. I have something inappropriate. What I want is just the leftovers that they don't want. I'm willing to have that because I'm desperate. 
And it took faith for her to say that, to express that even whatever crumbs God has is sufficient to heal her demon-possessed daughter. That she didn't need the whole piece of whatever, the big piece of food. She just needed a few little crumbs because God is so powerful, whatever He's serving up can handle demons in my daughter even if it's a few little crumbs. And He expresses that faith. She expresses that faith in him and notice the response there in verse 28 then jesus answered and said to her oh woman great is your faith let it be to you as you desire and her daughter was healed from that very hour great is your faith he only did that twice he the centurion he marveled at his faith and this woman both of whom were gentiles he could not find that kind of faith in israel that's amazing and, and he wants us to honor him with our faith, to believe that he can do what only God can do. And then he has a heart for us and he's willing to do it. all those things that bring those things before him and ask like you would ask a loving father. Verse 29, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having them, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed maimed that's interesting and many others and they laid them down at jesus feet and he healed them people that were maimed he healed too we don't see that very often in this in the gospels so the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking the maimed made whole the lame walking and the blind seeing and they glorified the god of israel now jesus called his disciples to himself and said i have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a, a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks broke them and gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave to the multitude. Again, they were just distributing like they were before with the feeding of the 5,000. So they all ate and were filled and they took up seven large baskets. That's a different Greek word than was used for those other little baskets that they had before with the feeding of the 5,000. This word was used when Paul is described as being lowered down in a basket to escape Damascus, you know, when he left Damascus. They're big, huge baskets full of fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children, and he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Now before we go into anything else, I want to first just the obvious thing that the disciples were not getting it. And maybe they thought because he just, you know, they, they wanted to make him king by force before. Maybe they thought he wasn't willing to do it, and they were just, you know, assuming he was talking about the, the natural. I don't know. But they, it seems like they weren't really considering that Jesus would do that type of miracle again. And that's encouraging to me because I don't get it too. I have a thick head. Can you hear that? It's thick. It's thick. And I think your head's a little bit similar to mine. We don't get it. God can do a miracle and He can work in such a way right before us. And then just a little while later, the same exact circumstances and we're what are you going to do, God? What could you possibly do? Where are we going to, you know, and, and that encourages me because we're like that. He didn't give up on the disciples. He didn't rebuke them. He works with them. They still, they didn't say, what are these among many? They weren't doubting him this time, but they still weren't anticipating that he would do it. There is progress there. But I want to ask you, why the copycat miracle? Why did Jesus just do this? I mean, he had just fed the 5,000. Why is he feeding uh, doing another type of miracle like this. Well, obviously they're hungry and he needed to feed them. Obviously that's the need there. But it's interesting that Matthew and Mark only record this episode and it has everything to do with the geographical location of where they were and who he was trying to reach. Look at verse 29 again. Notice he says that Jesus departed from there. What's there? Phoenicia up in the north where he was with that Gentile woman from Canaan or the Canaanite. And he skirted the Sea of Galilee. That's a perfect word. He skirted the Sea of Galilee. Again, the opposition was there in Galilee. The, the formalized, organized opposition. And so he skirted Galilee and he didn't go 
to the, to the side that he was normally going. He went on the east side and he went to a very special place and Mark refers to it as the Decapolis. Decapolis, deca means 10. So we get our word decade. Uh, polis is the word for city. Uh, we get our word police from it. So it was an area of 10 cities and they were Greek cities. And they were authorized by the Romans to have their own coins, to, to run their own courts, to have their own armies and so forth. They were very independent. They were, they were Gentiles. This is a Gentile region. That's the point. Again, I talked about there's a connection between reaching the heart that, that, that Peter didn't understand and reaching the Gentiles, reaching every heart that Peter didn't understand. So the big difference of this copycat miracle, and it's not exactly the same. There are great differences between them. But he basically did the same type of thing, is the location. And so these people were foreigners. They were Gentiles that were living there. And this is a, this is a new thing. He just had set up in the north in Phoenicia, that I have come to reach the lost sheep of Israel. Now he's, now he's ministering to these people that are, that are Greek in their background. They're, they're probably uh, Gentiles that have relocated from Rome and so forth. Just like Caesarea was a little taste of, of Rome, uh, so is the, the, the Copolis there. So he fed them and he taught them. And so this, this basically concludes his ministry. And we're going to see how it affected them in a minute. But it, basically, the, the, the feeding of the 5,000 ended his Galilean ministry. The feeding of the 4,000 ended his ministry in the, in the Gentile regions. And then, when, then he's going to focus after that in his disciples. And his disciples, his ministry to them, will basically culminate or end with the Last Supper. So he ends these things with with feeding and, and meals and so forth. And I think that's um, uh, noteworthy. But these Gentile foreigners, they glorified God. And it reveals that in verse 31. Look with me there. It says, So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. See, that shows us who, the, who these people are. The God of Israel. They weren't from Israel. They were, they were from another place. They were, they were Gentiles. They didn't follow that God. So we're told there that the they, so the multitude marveled when they saw all these things. Those are Gentiles. And it's really a foreshadow of the church being sent out. Because who do we mainly minister to? Gentiles. It's a beautiful picture. In fact, Matthew's gospel will climax at the, in, in chapter 28 with the Great Commission, with Go. The whole uh, gospel will culminate in go to reach the Gentiles. And it started in all the way back, at least in, uh, in, in working through a man, it, it started back in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham because God said go, or actually he said get out. <laughs> he said uh, in verse 1 of Genesis 12, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It has always been in the heart of God to reach the entire world and the entire earth with his love and reach people's hearts. And it's been in the process for thousands of years. He's been working towards that. And then when the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2, with all those people, those Jews from those different countries coming to the Feast of Pentecost, and they heard the, the gospel, they heard Peter, of all people, preach the gospel, and 3,000 were saved. Then they went out to their homes, to their areas, and they became the first evangelists all over the world. Paul ran into people on his missionary journeys that already knew Christ. They had come from the day of Pentecost when Peter had, had preached. So God has been interested in this global outreach, and he wants to use us to reach these people to reach hearts not just religious expressions of of you know uh you know this outward appearance of of worship but people's true hearts engaging god that's what he wants hearts and he wants every heart so just a few lessons just in review our tradition can contradict god's word and we have to go with god's word instead of tradition because when we obey tradition to, 
to the neglect of God's word. The word of God is made of no effect in people's lives, and God doesn't receive the blessing of our obedience. Second, God wants man's heart, as I said. And we it begins with a wicked heart, as Jesus talked about. Out of, the, out of those hearts comes murders and all these things and, and, and um, all these sins. And so it starts off bad. We retain our sinful nature, but then he gives us the power and grace with our new heart um, as we depend upon him to live a life that's pleasing to him. And then lastly, his heart is for the entire world. And it always has been that, that way. Again, for thousands of years, he's been working to reach the entire world, to reach everybody's heart, to have a personal relationship with them. And now he wants to use us. And he's building towards that Matthew 28, that go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. He says, you go and do it. And so he gets our attention off ourselves and onto this great need that's out there and how he wants to reach people. And that's what we need to see. We need to be reminded of that, that he's a seeking and saving God and he wants us to preach that gospel. Peter said when he was sharing with Cornelius in his house that God commanded that we go and preach these things. And he hasn't commanded us any less. Because again, he said to the disciples, teach them, those people that you're going to reach, to do the same things that I've told you to do. And so that's us. That's, that's what he's called us to do. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for so much that we have learned, Lord, and um, you just want us so much to engage the world and to preach your gospel, the gospel that is so beautiful. And when we bring that gospel, our feet are beautiful because we're bringing that, the great news of that message. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to be the, the ambassadors that you've called us to be, to get our eyes off ourselves and onto you and onto others and to be paying attention to the people that don't know you, Lord, in our lives, around us, our neighbors, our co-workers, our family. Help us, Father, to be willing to be bold in proclaiming that gospel. And we recognize that the darker this world gets and the more wicked it gets, the brighter your light shines through us. So help us to not be discouraged about the more we see people not believing. Help us, Lord, to continue to go forward with boldness, knowing that you said you would build your church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.